From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, in what her campaign described as an important address, Nikki Haley made it clear she has no intention of dropping out of the Republican race for president, no matter the outcome of the Saturday GOP primary in her home state of South Carolina. We'll go live to the Crescent State to talk with AP politics reporter Meg Canari. I'm Tia Mitchell here in Atlanta. The culture wars are back at the state capitol. Republicans are moving forward with the bill to regulate classroom discussions about gender identity, plus measures aimed at limiting the freedom of librarians to bring in books of their choosing. Plus, Democratic hopes that a proposal to fully expand Medicaid this session were dashed when Republicans made it clear it wouldn't happen. The Democrats aren't happy about it. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia, where we aim to set the stakes and agenda for Georgia politics every weekday morning. I'm Bill Nygate here in the studio, and I'm joined in person by Washington reporter, Tia Mitchell. Tia, what a great pleasure to have you in town and sitting across from me in the WABE studio this morning. That's right. I'm live in the flesh. Let's go. All right. Let's get to it. South Carolina Republican primary just three days off now. Um, Saturday, uh, Republicans will go to the polls. Uh, Donald Trump has a commanding lead in all of the polling that we've seen of the race. We're really pleased that despite how busily she's covering that South Carolina race right now, AP politics reporter Meg Kennard has agreed to join us for a little while today. Meg, thank you so much for being with us today. Hello, of course. It is so great to be with you guys. And you know, if I'm going to pull over on the side of a county road <laughs> to be with anybody on the radio, it's going to be y'all. Well, so thank I'm you. happy to be here. Well, what's just in a general way, what's it like on the ground in South Carolina right now? Meg, are you, I don't know about things like um, whether canvassing is going on around various communities there. What are there lots of yard signs? Is there an is there an excitement factor are you feeling or not? 
it is a weird campaign. It's been a weird campaign all the way through, but I kind of get excited when I see a yard sign because there's so <laughs> few of them. And I've been doing this for a long time and it's just, it's very different than it was in 08, 12, and even 2016. People are aware, I guess, that there is a primary, but they're expressing it in a, a really different way. And it's it's really not as visible yeah, in I, those traditional sort of senses. Yeah, I guess that social media has taken the place of yard signs uh, over recent campaigns. Meg, let me just quickly read you the lead to your uh, piece uh, from yesterday. You'd said this, there are no wins on the horizon for Nikki Haley, those close to the former United Nations ambassador, the last major Republican candidate standing in Donald Trump's path to the nomination, are privately bracing for a blowout loss in her home state's primary election on Saturday. And they cannot name a state where she is likely to beat Trump in the coming weeks. So what's the game here, Meg? The game at this point, I think, is to stay in it as long as she can so that at the end of this, Nikki Haley can say, look, guys, I did everything I possibly could to give y'all as Republican voters an option who wasn't named Donald Trump. And she's able to do that because she's continuing to bring in money which we all know is the lifeblood for campaigns. Once that runs out, that's when it ends. It doesn't end when the candidate feels like it's over. It ends when the money runs out. And hers is still coming in. She ended January with about $13 million on hand. And these days, that is plenty to keep it going, especially for the kind of lean campaign that Nikki Haley has been running. She's not flying private. She has been really keeping mindful of the donations as they come in. And that's allowed her to continue to do this, to be on the air. She's up with a new ad today and the airtime is still expensive. That's a traditional campaign kind of thing like the yard signs, but it does cost money to stay on TV and she's still able to do that. So in, even though she has not won a state, there is not one that they can name that they're sure that they'll be able, able to overtake Donald Trump. And she's going to lose her home state here on Saturday She's sticking with it. And at the end of it, whenever that comes, we'll be able to say, I went as far as I could. And that right there could be setting her up for something else down the pike in a future cycle. So, Meg, thanks again for joining us. I want to ask you about that speech um, that Haley delivered yesterday. And I know uh, we heard a little bit of it. Um, Do we want... Were you surprised? I think a lot of people, when she said she was making a speech, thought it was a dropout speech. And the fact that that was more newsy than what she actually, that would have been news. Instead, she said, I'm staying here. I'm not going anywhere. Were you were you surprised? Well, let's hear a little bit of the speech first. And then I want to get some of your reaction to what she said. The presidential primaries have barely begun. Just three states have voted. Three. That's it. After this weekend, we'll be at four. That's not a lot. In the 10 days after South Carolina, another 21 states and territories will vote. People have a right to have their voices heard. And they deserve a real choice, not a Soviet-style election where there's only one candidate and he gets 99% of the vote. Meg? We knew that Nikki Haley was not going to be dropping out. We knew that she had already planned to be visiting seven Super Tuesday states right after this speech. She's headed out after Saturday to go and and tour the country, basically. So we knew all of those things. But Nikki Haley 
has continued to show that she understands how the news cycle works. This is something that covering her as governor, I remember, you know, being very well aware of when she would pick her spots. She knew that the National Press Corps was in town. She knew that there are those of us, me, along with dozens of my colleagues who've been following her literally around the country during this campaign. And we're all here to cover her here in South Carolina. And she knew that by doing this, it would create this moment of drama and anticipation. So then she could stand up and deliver a lot of the same sorts of things she's been saying on the stump. Like, I am your option against Donald Trump. I am still here. Here are the things that I did as governor and UN ambassador. But she knew that all eyes would be on her. And so when she stood up and delivered even a lot of that same information, she was sharpening some of the language she was using. That Soviet-style line that y'all just played She's been saying, you know, we don't have coronations in this country, that we should have options. I want to respect the voters who vote after these early carve-out states. But she was using a little bit sharper of a tone in saying, I am your option against Donald Trump. Don't just let him run away with this. And by the way, I've called all of you here, so you all have to be listening to me, and I have all of your attention. So she is a savvy media operator. She knew exactly what she was doing. Why do you think <clears throat> why do you think the money's still coming? I mean, there you said she's not going to win her home state. You said there's no indication any of these uh, Super Tuesday states there will be a different outcome. Um, Trump has not made any indication he's just going to, you know, say all of a sudden, you know what? Nikki Haley's right. She'd make a better president. So why are people giving her money to keep her going? I think for some donors, it makes them feel better so they can kind of go along in that same lane. Like she's saying, I'm your last option. I'm doing everything possible. There are some folks who feel comfortable striking those checks because they want to be able to say, well, I did everything I could do, too. And also, there is a theory, as far-fetched as it may be, that if something does happen to Donald Trump between now and November or now and the convention at some point, if something happens in one of these legal cases that surround him that may prevent him somehow from being able to go forward, then she will be there. Then she will be that option. She will be that break glass kind of substitute. And she'll already have garnered some delegates and some support from around the country. And that's an extreme example, but that's kind of the political environment in which we're all operating right now, just kind of thinking ahead to what hasn't happened that we might be preparing for. And so at this point in her campaign, I think that's part of what's going into the mindset of donors who would like to be supportive of that non-Trump option. Meg, I I know that Donald Trump has spent just a little more than a million dollars in South Carolina uh, far eclipse. Uh, you you may know the number better than I, but I think Nikki Haley's campaign has spent more like thirteen million plus uh, in a state that isn't a very expensive state to buy media in. But it's astonishing that uh, the Trump campaign is so confident that they felt they need to spend very little money there. And I want to add one other element to this. Politico is reporting. Um, uh, they reported yesterday that Nikki Haley has been attracting thousands of donations from people who gave to Joe Biden's 2020 campaign. More than 5,200 donors to the Biden campaign in 2020 have now backed Haley, um, including some who have given $500,000 or more in January alone, which raises the question, Meg, do we have any expectation that Democrats, it's an open primary state, Democrats didn't vote in great numbers. 
in their primary in the beginning of the month, do we have any reason to think Democrats are going to turn out to try to get, send a message to Donald Trump and vote for Nikki Haley on Saturday? Some of them will. Some of them already are. I personally know plenty of people here in South Carolina who sat out that primary. As you note, it wasn't competitive. It was less than 5% voter participation. That's abysmally low. But it's also a primary that in traditional cycles would have been canceled because Joe Biden is an incumbent. And therefore, in those circumstances, state parties oftentimes don't hold a primary. Those are expensive as well. But South Carolina got to go first this year. And so they made a point to have one. Now, the question is, Will any of those quote unquote crossovers make a difference at all? That is unknown at this point. But every time I go to a Nikki Haley rally, I will encounter someone who says that they supported Joe Biden before and didn't participate in the February 3rd Democratic primary here so they could go ahead and cast their vote for Nikki Haley. Now, when it comes down to it, if she were the nominee, those same voters tell me they would be supporting Joe Biden in the general election. But at this point, just like some of those donors who at least would like to feel like they supported somebody against Trump at this stage in the game, some of those voters are willing to use their vote, which, as we all know, as citizens, that is sacred to us as as Americans. They're willing to use that, at least in this primary construct, to make their voice heard and to stand against him. It's just unknown as to how much of that actually happens. These primaries are tough. This is the only thing, aside from a few ballot questions, that's on the ballot this Saturday. And that's not generally something that drives people out in large numbers when they don't have other offices like governor or Congress or even more local situations to really consider. Meg, I want to shift a little bit to talk a little bit more about Trump, who is, you know, the front runner, the guy likely to win in South Carolina and beyond. Can you tell us a little bit about that campaign, what you're seeing on the trail, what you're hearing from him? I think a lot of people, I'm sure you hear it, too. Um, people who maybe aren't inclined to support President Trump continue to be surprised that he's doing so well. They kind of don't get it. What are you seeing? I do hear that from a lot of voters who were perhaps supportive of him in the past and are like, look, we're over it. We want something different. But those are people who are showing up at Nikki Haley events. So they're not really considering Donald Trump at this point. I've covered multiple Donald Trump rallies over the past couple of weeks here in South Carolina. He was back yesterday. He'll be holding more events later on this week. And at those rallies, people who are feeling like they are going to support him and say that they have been supportive this whole way through since 2016, they are very certain of his victory. They're very certain that despite whatever challenges may be facing him, he's their guy and they're comfortable with him remaining their guy. And South Carolina is one of those places where, sure, we're an early state, but the field is so much smaller than it was when all of this began that the only other option for these voters really right now is Nikki Haley. And that's exactly the circumstance that she wanted. But going up against the support that Donald Trump has maintained in South Carolina, it's not just all the endorsements. It's not just the senators and the members of Congress who are standing behind him, but it's the grassroots and the voters who turn out in large numbers for all of his events. They are few and far between. He doesn't have nearly as many things going on as Nikki Haley does. But as Bill was noting, he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to spend that money to get those numbers and to have that support. That's a weird circumstance as a former president seeking the nomination again, but you really can't get a higher level of name ID than already having been president and having had that job. So he really hasn't needed to do a whole lot more in building out that ground game, particularly here. We'll see how that goes in some swingier states 
that come across later on in the campaign, certainly. But here in South Carolina, he's very well known, liked by a whole lot of people. And so it just really hasn't been as big of a visibility campaign as certainly we saw in 2016 when the GOP field was pretty massive. Meg, I know we've got to let you go in a minute because, as you said, you've pulled off the side of the road on your way to North <laughs> Augusta. So we'll give you we'll, we'll, we'll let you go in a second. But I, I do want to ask you another question, if I may. I mean, you know, South Carolina politics as well, if not better than any other reporter who covers that state. Um, we know that the leadership is lined up uh, behind Donald Trump. But I want to talk about one person in particular, and that's Tim Scott. What kind of presence has Tim Scott had? I assume he's been out at rallies for Trump across the state. And I'm also curious about how you've observed the change in Tim Scott from a guy who we would have never expected to be in the Trump camp, especially since Nikki Haley appointed him to the Senate. Uh, and now he is there kissing the ring, to use an expression that Nikki Haley did yesterday. I feel like there are a lot of folks across South Carolina and maybe more broadly outside just in the non-South Carolina media universe who are like, wow, that's that's really disloyal of him. She put him in the Senate to begin with. Then he ran against her in the primary and now he's endorsing the other guy. But I mean, there are a lot of Republicans in South Carolina and not all of them are close or friends or even allies. Those two were at some points and clearly Haley thought enough of Tim Scott to put him in the Senate in 2012. But that was a long time ago, politically speaking. Now, Tim Scott, I think, is perhaps thinking about a couple of things, one of which could potentially be as a running mate for a Trump ticket this year. And he's been introducing Donald Trump at various events. He was part of his event with Fox News yesterday at the town hall. We expect to see him on stage later this week as well at another rally for Donald Trump. And Donald Trump actually hit it on the nail, hit the nail on the head himself last week when he said, look, I've said to Tim Scott, you're doing a, a much more hyped up job for my campaign than you did for your own. And you didn't do a great job of bragging on yourself, but you've got no problem bragging on me. And I really appreciate that. And he keeps sure we're in South Carolina. But the way that Donald Trump keeps referencing Tim Scott and ensuring that he is part of that stage presence as he campaigns here, it certainly gets on people's minds in terms of is he perhaps showing us who his potential running mate could be. Tim Scott was with him in New Hampshire as well on the trail. I don't know. Donald Trump claims he knows who his running mate's going to be. We'll see. But it certainly has been a very visible piece of his campaign here. And I think if we see Tim Scott hitting the road with Donald Trump in the states that follow, that could be another thing to watch in terms of perhaps where his head is on it. Well, Meg Kennard, we really have appreciated having you with us. We want to let you get back on the road. And we know that South Carolina, is it's your home, but it's only one stop for you. You'll be following the presidential race uh, all the way through the primaries. And so you know we'll always look forward to having you back with us. But Meg, thanks for being with us today. Happy to join you all anytime. Thanks for having me. Um, by the way, uh, Tia, we should point out that um, Meg mentioned that she's on her way to North Augusta, which, by the way, is in South Carolina. It is mm -hmm. not in Georgia mm -hmm. um, to uh, see a Nikki Haley event. Guess who else is there? Who else? Patricia Murphy and Greg Bluestein. That's right. Who are going to be given an opportunity to interview Nikki Haley, uh, I think, late this morning. And we look forward to having sound from that interview on tomorrow's show and maybe even more of it on Friday, but the Haley campaign, even as they're 
still fighting hard in South Carolina, has said, we want to talk to the AJC and to politically Georgia. All righty. Well, we'll be looking forward to that for sure. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. And when we come back, it's really kind of interesting to see that after a lull last session, the culture wars are back in full force at the state capitol. And uh, certainly when it comes to gender identity, the state Senate sees that as a road toward election victory in the fall. We'll do that after these messages. This is the AJC's Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut, joined in the studio by AJC Washington reporter Tia Mitchell. We've got a great offer for Politically Georgia listeners. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week for life. As long as you keep your subscription, you'll get our sports and politics coverage, breaking news, in-depth investigations, food and dining, and more from AJC.com every day for life. You'll also unlock access to our app, exclusive film and events, and newsletters. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com start. That's AJC.com start. It's a great deal for a greater Atlanta. And this is for new subscribers only. Tia, um, we're following right now um, a couple of bills in the legislature that we're going to talk about with our uh, state house reporter, Maya Prabhu, who joins us right now. Hi, Maya. Thank you for being with us this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And we're also uh, joined by longtime director of Georgia Equality, Jeff Graham. Jeff, thank you too for being here as well. Absolutely, Bill. It's a, it's a pleasure. Um, T, as I said before the break, the culture wars are back in full force in the state Senate, and um, they seem to be coalescing around issues of gender identity, Tia. Yes, and I think it's notable that when it comes to the culture wars, the um, conservative um, Republicans have shifted away from abortion because that's proved to be a loser at the ballot box. Um and it seems like some of the book bans and things like that, those are starting to become losers as well. Um, there have been some pushback at the school level that, um, you know, teachers and librarians are being maligned. And that's starting to become a little bit of a loser still going on, but starting to become a little bit of a loser. And so now it seems like kind of the last boogeyman standing is transgender people. Um, and I and I say that from the perspective that we're hearing from those conservative Republicans. It, there hasn't yet been as much of the backlash um, that other uh, targets of the culture war um, to reverse that. Um, but I would love to stop talking and let Maya and Jeff give us their perspective on why 
the transgender wars continue to be kind of such a focus. Maya, why don't you just give us a rundown of what we're talking about in terms of legislation, and then we'll ask Jeff to get involved, too. Um, So a couple of things. I think first, since social issues is kind of like my area, maybe I have, and I'm sure Jeff feels the same way. Um, I don't feel like they took a break on culture wars last year. Um, You know, we had the ban on gender affirming care for transgender children. um, And then they also did talk about book bans last year. They did talk about, you know, the uh, bill that limits the way teachers and uh, staff can talk to students about gender identity being heard last year. So those have come back to the, you know, to the forefront, the, the, you know, book bans and the, um, the idea of limiting the way that teachers talk to students about gender identity. Um, and then we're seeing a lot of things that are, they're coming back that they've already done, but they're just tweaking. So we're seeing this, you know, the Republicans call it save girls sports. So we're seeing that legislation come back, Two years ago, they made it so that the um, Georgia High School Sports Association could make the decision of whether or not to let transgender athletes play in the um, sport according to their gender identity. Now they want to come back and and codify it. They want to make that law and then also separate them uh, in locker rooms and bathrooms. Then um, we also have yesterday uh, a bill was first read. from a senator who has a primary opponent uh, that uh, comes back with the um, from last year, the gender affirming care and puts puberty blockers back in. That was something that was still allowed under our law that passed last year. And this new law would ban those puberty blockers for minors as well. So that's kind of and that's not even everything, but those are like the big ones that have gotten hearings so far. So I'll let Jeff jump in. Yeah, and 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 I I appreciate your correcting me. I I I made my comment based on the fact that some of this did not get through last year, large part in part because Jeff Graham, you and your organization and others out there were able to at least stop some of this temporarily. Although it's a second year of a biennial, so it moves forward. Jeff, what are the measures that you're most Uh, you're looking at most closely and most concerned about right now. Yeah, well, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Tia, I think you're 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 spot on, and I and I hope we get an opportunity to to talk about the politics of of this and and uh, the the trends that I think will be happening in the future. But uh, you know, my I think did a, a great list of that. It's it's actually uh, over a dozen bills um, that are targeting the LGBT community just here in Georgia. Um, over four hundred that have been introduced uh, nationwide. Again, most of them. Uh, targeting transgender individuals in general and transgender youth very much in specific. Uh, The bills that we will be watching um, very closely between now and crossover day uh, will certainly be um, uh, uh, Senate Bill 88, which is a forced outing of transgender students bill. Um, The the bill that Maya just mentioned, Senate Bill 519, that would add puberty blockers to the law that already restricts access to health care for transgender youth and uh, prohibits parents from working with medical teams to make proper medical decisions regarding the health care of their children. Um, and uh, Senate Bill 180, which uh, is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which it's rearing its head once again. And we're looking at those bills uh, because Senate Bill 88 has started to move. 
Uh, but some of these other bills um, really uh, take uh, have have serious concerns if they would be uh, passed into law. Well, then what are the politics uh, behind all of this from your point of view, Jeff? Well, Tia, I, I couldn't agree with you more about where we are, that this is the next wave because uh, abortion has it's no longer the winning issue for a lot of Republicans. Um, but we did a poll last year uh, that followed colleagues that we have in Kentucky that, that uh, did a similar poll. And when we asked the question about allowing state government to overrule parents' decisions to obtain certain health care for their transgender teenagers, such as medications that can regulate the onset of puberty, 66% of people who said that they are likely to vote in 2024 here in Georgia opposed that. That includes 59% of Republican voters. So I think that what it is, is as the public begins to actually understand the implications of this legislation, it's starting to lose support. Um, and then, you know, the, the real tragedy of this is not just politics. But uh, it came to light earlier this week that a young uh, non-binary high school student in Oklahoma, where they have passed into law a number of pieces of legislation similar to the ones we're still debating here in Georgia, including restricting access to restrooms, uh, this young binary student was attacked violently in a restroom and has subsequently passed away. So uh, the threat of violence is incredibly real. We saw a clinic that provides healthcare services to transgender individuals that um, the, the uh, last November, uh, there was a fire and it was declared a few weeks ago to be arson. Um, uh, the, the threats to the LGBT community are mounting all the time. Jeff, well, Maya, first I want to start with you, Maya. What are... What is the probability, because um, it was mentioned that a lot of these bills last year were put on the floor, didn't quite make it to the finish line. Republicans are trying again. What is the probability that some of these anti-transgender um, bills become law this year? And what are the roadblocks that um, may stop the progress? So I would say Senate Bill 88 is the one that has the least chance of passing. They have opposition from the left and the right on that. Um, it got out of committee. I'm told uh, some of the folks who were Republicans who were told to make sure they were there were not told what bill they were voting on um, and why they needed to be at the Education Committee that day. And, you know, were kind of ambushed with having to vote in support of this bill that they don't actually support. So my gut is telling me it might kind of fizzle out. Um, and, and I just want to stop. Yeah. Say the, that's the bill that is about regulating classroom discussions yes. about gender identity. It's kind of modeled or you say it harkens to Florida's don't say gay bill that we know ended up being very controversial. Right. Yes. So I, I, I'm not sure that I see that one getting much more forward movement. Um, the one about um, making sure that children play sports assigned uh, according to the uh, gender assigned on their birth certificate, I think that might have legs. Um, and when that passed the first time, it was a last minute after midnight 
amended into another bill. And, you know, we always have those last minute shenanigans. So I think, uh, you know, of those two, that's where I see those ones going. And Jeff, I wanted to ask you at Equality Georgia, what is your organization's role as far as education? Because, again, I think one of the reasons why anti-transgender um, legislation tends to get uh, more traction is that the talking point seems to be easily digested, which is boys should do sports with boys, girls should do sports with girls and men in skirts and things like that. So what what is your organization's role in education on these issues? Because you say when people are educated, they think differently. Yeah, no, it is uh, it is a challenge. Um, uh, the vast majority of people I have either never met a transgender individual or they've they don't know that they've met a transgender individual. Uh, I think that uh, one of the things that uh, is is on our side uh, is that um, uh, as this as acceptance grows, uh, there is more familiarity with this and uh, and especially the support of parents. So uh, we really work a lot with the parents of transgender kids year round to help give voice to their experiences, uh, to make sure that they have the support that they need, but also to make sure that they feel comfortable talking about uh, their families, uh, why they're supportive of their kids, their own personal journeys. Um, I think most of them would say that uh, they didn't realize that they were uh, the parent of a transgender child until that child came out. And so it's a similar journey story to, I think, what parents uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago were experiencing uh, with gay, lesbian, and bisexual kids. We're now seeing that with, with transgender kids. So uh, we do work to make sure we work with media, we do social media, we do uh, educational programs a lot. To, to make sure that the, that the story about this gets, gets out there and people are more familiar. The one thing I do want to say about uh, that bill, Senate Bill 438, it's not just around athletics. It also includes a ban on restrooms and locker rooms. And the story that I just told about the, the young student in Oklahoma, that's a, I, I would hate to have something like that happen here in Georgia because we have told kids who are gender, uh, non-binary or transgender, that they cannot use the restrooms that they feel most comfortable using. And, you know, just to to jump on what uh, something that Jeff said that I found interesting at the last hearing for Senate Bill 88, the one that, you know, limits the way teachers can discuss gender identity in public and private schools, um, was that the Republicans only let people, the Republicans in control of the committee only let people who supported the bill speak. And they sought out gay people to speak, gay and, and lesbian people to speak in support of the bill, saying that transgender people are, try, they're not putting in the work, you know, they're trying to piggyback and, and benefit off of all of the hard work that we did all of those years ago. And they need, you know, they need more skin in the game and they need to fight their own battles instead of trying to tie it to the LGBT um, movement for, for equality. And I was curious what Jeff thought about that. Well, I, 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 I couldn't disagree more. 
um, with with that. Uh, certainly, you know, everybody is entitled to their own opinions. Uh, I think it proves that uh, the LGBT community, like any other uh, minority or marginalized community, is not uh, monolithic and of one thought. Um, several of the people that provided testimony are folks that I do know. Um, I, uh, however, I, I, I completely disagree with them. Uh, transgender people have always been a part of our movement. Transgender people have always existed in all cultures uh, throughout time. So there is nothing new about transgender individuals. What is more new is the acceptance and the understanding that gender identity is intrinsic, similar to how sexual orientation is intrinsic. And so young people are coming out at an earlier age. Jeff, I, w- I want to move this uh, to a broader conversation for a minute. Uh, Maya, are you okay to stick with us for a few more minutes? I know you have. All right, good. Jeff, um, we're talking a lot about the transgender measures that the Senate has taken up, but I want to talk to you a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of perhaps a retrogressive attitude about gay and lesbian issues by in, in the legislature as well. So, for instance, the religious freedom bill that you mentioned has as much impact on the gay and lesbian community as it does on transgendered individuals. So it, it does feel to me like we're moving backward in time. You've been covering, uh, you've been down there lobbying for many years. What's your sense of where we're headed? Well, yeah, you you are absolutely correct, uh, Bill. Um, While most of these bills really do focus on transgender individuals, many of them uh, would have implications uh, for for all of us in the LGBT community and gay and lesbian folks. Um, So certainly the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, it, it sounds harmless. Uh, it uh, provides heightened protections uh, to, to people of faith. That's actually a good thing. But part of the challenge is here in Georgia, there is no civil rights protection for any other group of people. Um, we're one of only three states that lacks a statewide civil rights law that broadly protects people against discrimination in housing, employment, and public accommodations. So if we do a carve out for one group of people only, in this instance, people of faith, suddenly they have more rights than everyone else. And that loophole then creates a license to discriminate against others. On top of that, we have seen how the federal RIFRA language and RIFRA language in other states has been used increasingly over the last decade. Uh, And this goes back to the Supreme Court decision in Hobby Lobby. It ties back into abortion and contraception in many ways. Um, that, uh, That decision gives businesses the ability to have religious beliefs. And so RIFRA has been increasingly weaponized, was used a couple of years ago in South Carolina, an evangelical Christian uh, uh, adoption agency uh, was successful in using RIFRA to say that they did not want to work with Jewish or Catholic couples who did not share their faith. Uh, It has been used in Texas uh, by a police officer that did not want to have to provide security at a mosque. Uh, And most recently, also in Texas, it has been used successfully, uh, again, by a business owner who said he did not want to have insurance plans that would compel him to provide access to contraception and HIV prevention medications 
through that insurance plan. So uh, all of those uh, can have an impact, not just on gay and lesbian folks, but on the broader community as a whole. And you kind of hit on this, Jeff, and I know we're drawing to a close for our segment, but I just wanted to ask you about the slippery slope argument that when you start regulating gender and who's a boy and who's a girl. And I think a lot of people take for granted that it's not always so black and white, even in very routine births. There are um, people born with both organs or there are literally doctors um, at birth making gender assignment when things aren't so cut and dry. And it's not talked about as much, but I think it's not as rare as people think. There are people who, um, you know, a woman might have higher levels of testosterone naturally. Um, and and the, again, those kind of cases aren't talked about, but they're not as rare, I think, as people would like to believe. But is that something your organization talks about or thinks about as part of the transgender culture wars. Absolutely. And, and, and it's not just gender. You're, you're, you're talking, you're describing intersex folks. Um, and while I don't have uh, firm statistics on that, uh, oftentimes it has been said that uh, intersex folks are as common as redhead folks. Um, it's a small minority, but it is much more common than people think. Um, and we have had medical professionals, including legislators, providing testimony on the floor that uh, intersex folks are much more common. In fact, there is a bill in the House we didn't talk about, but it does redefine sex um, as sex assigned at birth very narrowly. And it would cut out intersex people uh, as well as transgender people uh, in Georgia law. Maya, before we let you go, I want to ask one last question of you. Um, The Senate is often the place where some of the most conservative bills, as you well know, uh, are given birth. Uh, The House uh, is Sometimes the kind of cooling saucer in terms of legislation, if these measures move forward uh, before uh, crossover day and end up in the House, what's the likelihood that many of them will, in fact, get a hearing and be passed in the House? You know, in the days of former Speaker David Ralston, I would say probably not a lot of chance. We're still learning new Speaker John Burns. Um I, you know, obviously I don't have a crystal ball, but I don't believe that Speaker Ralston would have let last year's bill banding gender affirming care hit the floor. Um, so it's really unclear. It, 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 it really depends on how John Burns comes down on these issues. And, and he's been a hard one to pin down on a lot of yeah, these. That's really so interesting. Jeff, yeah. your take on that? I, I, I would agree with, with Maya. Very much. It's it is un it's 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 unknown over at the house right now, but uh, you know they they have a much more collegial environment, uh, much more open to working in a bipartisan manner. They also have uh, five open uh, lesbian, gay, and queer uh, representatives, and having people that are there building relationships, being able to talk about the real harm it has on us as individuals, I think does have a calming effect. Um, on on some of this really horrible legislation. Um, We've got to take a break. Jeff Graham, um, I've watched your work for a very long time. 
you have always been masterful at the way you talk to legislators. You don't always win, um, but you have been such a strong representative for your community. And it's always a pleasure to have you on Politically Georgia. And Maya, we continue to look forward to reading all your coverage of uh, the uh, legislature now that we're getting down to it uh, with crossover day. When is crossover day, uh, Maya? It is uh, February 29th. All right. Coming up really quickly. Thank you both for being uh, with us uh, today. Um, you know, I'm going to add one quick note to you before we go to a break. I don't know that Jeff and Maya are aware of this yet. Yesterday, Justice Samuel Alito, uh, in uh, turning down, being part of a court's turning down a, 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 a case that we don't need to get into any detail about, but essentially renewed his feelings that the Supreme Court should take up the issue of gay marriage, which he has said for some time was wrongly decided. Clarence Thomas agrees with him. I'm not suggesting that the court is about to go move forward on that, but it's a sign that there are people who are looking backward instead of forward in terms of gay and lesbian rights. Yeah, Um Again, we I know we're out of time, but the Supreme Court decided not to hear the case. But Alito and um, Thomas. Justice Thomas both kind of made it clear they'd love to take another stab at that landmark Supreme Court case, making gay marriage, uh, protecting the rights for same sex marriage. All right. There's another issue that Jeff Graham can uh, start thinking about even more than he probably already has. That's it. We've got to take our break right now. We'll be back with more. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. Tia Mitchell, Bill Nygut, that's me, here to talk to you in the final segment of Politically Georgia today. By the way, if you have a question that you would like to ask us on Politically Georgia, we've got just the place for you to go. Our phone line, our call-in hotline, where you can leave a message with your question, and we will try to answer it on the Friday show. The number is 404-526-2527. 404-526-2527. Tia, we started the legislative session, and in fact, for weeks before the session, we talked on this show, as many people who are interested in politics and and legislators who were talking about it, uh, believed this was the year that Republicans were going to pass a bill for a full expansion of Medicaid. Well, yesterday... The leadership of the Republican Party said, not going to happen this session. 
and Democrats are really fuming about it. Yeah, um, even Democrats, is it today or tomorrow, they're doing a big press conference. That's later today, this afternoon. Georgia House Democrats are going to do a press conference to try to to react to that news that Medicaid expansion isn't being expanded, to try to urge Republicans to change course. We know that's not going to happen. Once once they say they're not doing it, it's not, not much Democrats can do to change Republicans' mind. I think that it's not surprising given that this is an election year and given that Republicans have started saying the quiet parts out loud, which is that they don't want to give major wins that could help Joe Biden have more to run on. And we know a state like Georgia, a swing state, battleground state like Georgia, embracing Medicaid expansion, which is a signature component of President Obama's Affordable Care Act legislation. That's just a tough swallow, again, in an election year where Biden is on the ballot. Also, I want to point out that I've said all along, it's not if, it's when. So, yes, Georgia will eventually expand Medicaid, just like Georgia eventually voted to create a Medicaid program because the state, all the states had to decide if they were going to do Medicaid originally decades ago. And southern states were slow to do so. Um, And now the states have had to decide whether they want to expand Medicaid. And once again, southern states have been slow to do so. But just like all 50 states eventually embrace Medicaid, and I'm sure when there weren't 50 states when Medicaid was created, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, Eventually, all 50 states will expand. But again, it's not if it's when it might take some more time, take some more states Um, doing so where uh, Georgia feels more left out. There are 10 states that have not taken advantage of the Affordable Care Act, um, uh, allowing states to expand Medicaid, the incentives that the Affordable Care Act uh, gave to states to expand it fully. By the way, states that have include Mississippi, not exactly a hotbed of liberal activism, and of course, Arkansas, which had we, we thought the model that Arkansas created might be the one that Republicans could embrace here in Georgia, because what the Arkansas model does is um, it, it, it gives a subsidy to people who are eligible for Medicaid to go on to the Obama exchanges, buy their health care privately, and then they get reimbursed for that. So it's a more indirect way to do it and maybe a little more palatable for Republicans. But, but of course, the, you pointed out that, uh, that here in the state, it wasn't going anywhere this session and, and, and among, not just because it's an election year, Governor Kemp said, we're not doing it. And right. that really is the death knell. For right. Because Kemp is also, um, I think he's kind of dug into his pathways program. It's, seems to me, I don't know Governor Kemp super well, but it just seems to me that he's locked in partially because, you know, it's 
it's almost like they're they've been poo-pooing, you know, my my plan. I'm going to keep working at it. I'm going to make sure that I prove the critics wrong and make sure my plan works. So I think as long as he's married to his plan and is fighting to get his plan executed, fighting to prove his plan can work, I think that'll be harder for the state to have a more traditional Medicaid expansion. Um, but again, Governor Kemp won't be governor forever. Um, and again, I think eventually there's going to be a lot of pressure um, on Georgia if it becomes one of the last states standing. And also the pressure is coming from rural hospitals. Mm-hmm. We got to remember that these rural hospitals are not run by lim- liberal Democrats. <laughs> these are rural hospitals in very conservative um, parts of the state. But they're saying we need Medicaid yeah, expansion because we need the money that would come with it. Yeah. Um, okay. We will see what the Democrats have to say this afternoon and certainly report it out. Uh, you'll read about it in uh, the Atlanta Journal Constitution, and we'll talk about it a little bit more on tomorrow's show. One last item uh, while we have just about uh, three minutes left Emerson College, which get, gets an A rating from 538 in its ratings of polling uh, uh, organizations. By the way, also my daughter's alma mater. Um, has a new poll of Georgia out. It shows Donald Trump at 48%, Joe Biden at 42%. And one of the interesting things about the poll is it is surprising how many uh, 18 to 29-year-olds prefer Trump, according to Emerson, just by one percentage point. But the fact that it's even that close is surprising. Trump over Biden Within the margin of error, but why are 18 to 29-year-olds so supportive, apparently, of Donald Trump right now? Um, It's early. Polls are snapshots of a given moment. But, Tia, uh, it's going to energize Democrats. It's going to make them nervous, and it's going to make them work harder to try to figure out how to get their voters uh, excited about the election. Yeah, because we keep saying, you know— Biden doesn't necessarily need to carry Georgia, but we know Biden would like to carry Georgia. Biden would it would be a little bit of embarrassment if right after one cycle after Democrats were able to flip Georgia, it flips back. It would kind of blunt some of Democrats momentum in Georgia, especially not just for Biden, but they're going to have to defend John Ossoff's seat just two years after. Um, So I think Democrats would like to do better in Georgia even keep it closer than what some of these polls are showing right now. But again, still lots of time left. Tia Mitchell, you get the final word in today's Politically Georgia. Again, it's so great to have you here in the studio with us. And it's always great to have all of you out there who are listening to the show uh, join us. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. And of course, you can follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. 
You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.